Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A milestone is expected soon in Connecticut's recreational cannabis industry. The state is expected to select its first retail licenses by lottery, but there are thousands of applicants for just a dozen licenses in this first round. Coming up, we hear from Andrea Comer, Deputy Commissioner of the State Department of Consumer Protection and Chair of the Social Equity Council. We also talk with Hearst, Connecticut's Julia Bergman about other cannabis developments. First, the Republican and Democratic state conventions wrapped up this weekend, and there are some notable races shaping up for primary day. For U.S. Senate, state Republicans endorsed social moderate Themis Claridis in a matchup against potential potential matchup, I should say, against incumbent Senator Richard Blumenthal. Meanwhile, Democrats have endorsed a diverse pool of candidates in several state races. Today, where we live, the Connecticut Mirror's Mark Pazniokas joins us to talk about what lies ahead for election season. Now, what races will you be watching? You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, you're going to give us a recap of uh, the conventions, including several state constitutional office races. But let's get some of these congressional seats out of the way, including the Senate race I just referenced, uh, Themis Claridis. Uh, for many people remember her as the House Minority Leader. And tell us uh, what happened at the convention with the delegates uh, and this endorsement. So Themis Claridis went to the convention uh, knowing she was going to win the endorsement. The question would be um, by what margin? She was hoping to really get as much as 70% or so. But she was the target of sort of a whispering campaign, some anonymous text messages and emails um, that pointed out uh, she was less than loyal to Donald Trump, which can really hurt you in a uh, Republican setting, even in Connecticut. And it also talked about her record on gun control. She did vote for the Sandy Hook gun control law that was passed when she was in the legislature. Uh, She's also a supporter of abortion rights and gay marriage. So that puts her um, out of the mainstream as far as the activists who tend to be selected as delegates, whether that puts her out of the mainstream as far as Republican voters, we'll find that out in August when she goes up against two uh, more conservative candidates who are absolutely loyal to Donald Trump. Tell us about those uh, two candidates for a, a potential matchup in, in August. Unlike uh, Themis Claridis, n- uh, neither one of them has ever won an election for public office. Uh, so one of them is Leora Levy. She is a Republican National Committee member from Greenwich. Uh, her biggest claim to fame is uh, she is a rainmaker for the party. She knows lots of ri- rich folks who will uh, write checks to 
different Republican causes. She did run for the state Senate in a special election and failed to win the nomination. Um, so this is sort of out of her comfort zone, trying to get on the big stage uh, running for public office. Peter Lamage uh, of Fairfield uh, is an immigrant from Albania. Um, that's very much a part of the story he tells about his family escaping a communist regime. Uh, he, like Leora, he is conservative. He is supportive of Donald Trump. And he also is opposed to abortion, as is Leora Levy. Um, Peter Lamage was the nominee for Secretary of State uh, a couple cycles ago. He ran for governor uh, last time unsuccessfully. He did not make it to the primary. Mm. When we think about the, the, the way that our state is made up in terms of uh, Republicans, uh, when we think about uh, Themis's, as you mentioned, she being a social moderate, and then these other two candidates who are more conservative, would that play better for Republicans, maybe for parts of uh, the 5th District or over in the 2nd District, uh, Mark? What do you think? Well, there are two ways of looking at it. So there were any number of delegates I spoke to uh, over the weekend who were very pragmatic, people who described themselves as conservatives, but viewed Themis Claritas as the most electable of the bunch, um, not just because of her political positions, but because of her skills as a campaigner, um, that she has been the, the spokesperson for the party in legislative debates. Uh, she is very comfortable mixing it up. Uh, as Themis would put it, she's very comfortable uh, punching it up. She uh, she enjoys uh, sharp debates. Uh, she does not shy away from conflict. Uh, so she had that certain appeal. The flip side is, uh, and this is the this is the debate you hear over and over again: Are the Republicans better off with somebody who? can appeal to the broader swath of unaffiliateds on issues like abortion? Um, or uh, are you better off offering a sharp contrast to Dick Blumenthal, who obviously is a liberal Democrat, who uh, strong supporter of, of gun control, abortion rights? Um, you know, abortion will be an issue we hear over and over again this summer and fall, um, thanks to what's going on at the Supreme Court. So th those are the two differing schools of thought. But I think the delegates, you know, 56 percent of the delegates uh, decided that Thomas Claritus was the way to go, that if they are going to take advantage of what appears to be a, a decent atmosphere for Republicans, given the unpopularity of Joe Biden um, and the general trend in midterms of the party out of power at the White House picking up seats. But again, in blue Connecticut, there will be uh, the fifth district congressional district is probably the most competitive. Um, other than that, you know, this still remains a, a solid blue state in uh, in most congressional uh, contests for, for sure. And so what happens behind the scenes? So again, Themis Claritas got the endorsement. You've got Lumage and Levy who are qualified for the primary. Do you expect there to be a three-way primary for this particular race in August? Or will there be some behind the scenes conversations happening? Um, Peter Lamage says he's absolutely committed to going forward. Uh, Lior Levy uh, left after the vote. Um, 
but she indicated um, she would go forward. The uh, both both Lamage and Levy went to that convention knowing Themis Claritus was going to win the endorsement. So it wasn't like that was a surprise that might discourage them. Um, so I, the expectation is yes, there'll be a three-way primary unless one of them suddenly wakes up and says, nah, I want to go to the Cape for the summer instead of spending it tromping around Connecticut. Mm. And when we think uh, about the incumbent, Senator Richard Blumenthal, again, name recognition, and we think about his campaign coffers. I mean, what do you expect to hear from him? Is it going to be after the primary that the campaign may be heating up more? Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Dick, Dick Blumenthal campaigns year round <laughs> when it's a, when it's an election year or not mm-hmm. i don't think you will see anything different from senator blumenthal as we see uh at any other year in any other month um you know he that he is constant he is in constant campaign mode he is a creature of outreach uh he always has been when he was attorney general and and certainly in the united states senate so you know i think People of Connecticut will see um, the Dick Blumenthal that they've known for years, and uh, they'll either go again with him or they won't. But I don't think you're going to see any change whatsoever in his positions, in his personality, or in his uh, habits. But given what you just said, does that work against him in terms of of people maybe getting tired of this longtime politician in this particular seat? Well, you've touched on the intangible, the hardest to measure thing in politics, which is, you know, when does a politician get to that tipping point? When do they stay too long at the fair? And we saw a little bit of that in 2006 when Chris Murphy beat Nancy uh, Johnson for Congress uh, in the 5th District. Um, Blumenthal's uh, approval ratings, uh, the the internals that the various parties have, you know, I'm told they're not as uh, as good as they've been in the past. But that does not mean he is uh, in grave danger. But uh, but you've hit on something, which is you just you just don't know at what point will the voters look at uh, somebody and say, yeah, let's it's it's time for a change. The in Connecticut. The thing that will help him, though, is there's been a fairly strong history of Connecticut voters not feeling comfortable with the Republican message nationally. Republicans in Connecticut compete quite well for governor until the election of Donald Trump in 2016, which energized uh, really a new generation of Democratic voters. They were competitive in the General Assembly. You know, they won half the seats in the state Senate and they came pretty darn close in the House. So you do have this dichotomy in Connecticut of Republicans really having difficulty in congressional races, in part because, you know, a lot of voters who may be inclined to go for um, a Republican they know here perhaps are not crazy about keeping uh, about putting Mitch McConnell back in charge of the United States Senate. 
You're hearing Mark Pazniok is here on Where We Live as we talk about uh, the state uh, Republican and Democratic conventions that just wrapped up. We spent a lot of time talking about the Senate race, a lot of more interesting races uh, to talk with uh, Mark about. And as I mentioned, he's Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we get to the, the other state offices, because uh, I mentioned the congressional races, so the fifth that uh, you anticipate being the most competitive? Yes, although George Logan, the Republican, his uh, fundraising uh, was pretty unimpressive the last quarter. So I don't know what, what's going on there, um, if if the enthusiasm is there. Um, but yes, on paper, certainly, um, the 5th District is the one that is most competitive, uh, even though Republicans have not won that seat since the 2004 election. Um, you do see Republicans for other offices, statewide offices, um, who have carried that district. So that certainly tells you that the voters in the 5th District are open to voting uh, for Republican. It's just a question of, um, you know, will George Logan, a former state senator, um, grab their attention uh, away from Johanna Hayes? Uh, the state treasurer and secretary of the state races, uh, those are also interesting uh, at the at the conventions on both sides. Let's talk about uh, the secretary of the state's race first, uh, starting with uh, the Republican convention, also a primary expected? Yes. And now we're getting into the area of uh, inside baseball, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Um, there is rarely a race for secretary of the state or treasurer that's going to excite uh, more than the insiders. But um, the Office of Secretary of State is an open race because Denise Merrill is not running again. So that tends to excite people who have their ambitions. So on the Republican side, you have a state representative, Terry Wood, who came in third at their convention, although arguably she may be the most electable um, uh, you know, a woman from Fairfield County who is... Uh, really uh, in step with a lot of Democrats about opening up the process. Um, the other two, the man who won is Dominic Rapini, um, who is tried to make a name for himself talking about voter fraud. And then Brock Weber, who works for Aaron Stewart, uh, the mayor of New Britain. And the race for Secretary of State on the Republican side you know, it has uh, sort of overtones of uh, the, the hangover from the 2020 presidential, which is what was the role of voter fraud? Now, all three Republicans, uh, even Mr. Rapini and Mr. Weber, who are more open to talking about the dangers of voter fraud, um, they acknowledge the legitimacy of Joe Biden's election as president. So they are trying to, uh, I think, not be deemed as uh, as super duper Trumpers uh, in a, in a way that even discomforts a lot of Republicans at this point. You know who are ready to move on and say, look, um, voter fraud does exist, but there's absolutely no evidence that it is scalable and can tilt a presidential election, um, one that would have required flipping you know half dozen states. On the Democratic side, uh, it's a different dynamic. Um, we're getting into identity politics. The Democrats, um, since 1962, have have run tickets that have had um, 
some agree of, a degree of diversity. There's, there's been a black candidate for treasurer uh, every cycle. Um, this year, um, there was a curveball thrown by Sean Wooden, the treasurer. He dropped out uh, fairly late in the game. So there was a quick scramble. Eric Russell, who had been vice chair of the state party, he won the endorsement. Um, he was certainly helped by the short runway for that race and the fact that he knows a lot of the folks who were delegates. And then you had Dita Bargava of Greenwich, um, and we will get into race and ethnicity because that is going to be a relevant part of this election. Um, Eric Russell is black. Dita Barga, Bargava is an Indian American. She ran against Sean Wooden in a primary uh, last time. Um, she is a uh, creature of Wall Street. She says she's the most qualified. Eric Russell is a bond attorney. Uh, his background is similar to that of Sean Wooden's, the uh, current treasurer. Then you have Karen Du Bois Walton, uh, who's an African-American woman from New Haven. Um, there was a great desire in some circles to have uh, a black woman run, believing that's a good way to uh, turn out black women voters who are an important part of the Democratic coalition. Uh, Karen Du Bois Walton is uh, she runs the New Haven Housing Authority. She is also uh, the chair of the State Board of Education, a position uh, that she got from Governor Lamont. Mm. So that was for uh, state treasurer. In terms of secretary of the state, five uh, candidates uh, vying for that endorsement. Representative Stephanie Thomas getting the endorsement. Tell us about her. She's fairly new to, to politics or to She's even name recognition in our state. Yes, that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, she is a first-term state representative from Norwalk, um, although she is vice chair of the Government Administration Elections Committee, which is the committee that really deals with election uh, rules and laws. So she is certainly conversant in the issues that um, that these folks will be talking about in the primary. And again, let's let's just get to it on um, on racial and ethnic identity. Um, Stephanie Thomas is black. The There was a desire in that race. Can the Democrats finally put a Latina on the ticket? There's never been uh, anybody identified as Hispanic or Latino on the statewide ticket for the Democrats. Um, and there were there are two who competed with her, two Latinas, uh, Representative Hilda Santiago of Meriden and Maritza Bond of New Haven, who is really their uh, public health director. And then you had two white males, Josh Elliott, state rep from Hamden, who did not get the 15% at the convention that automatically qualifies you for primary. Uh, Matt Lesser, the state senator from Middletown, did. Um, he has probably the highest profile in Democratic circles. He had some uh, labor backing um, it's unclear whether he will go forward. He has to make a decision today, and I'm told he's calling town chairs in his district. The convention for state senate in his district is tonight, so he needs to make a decision today. Is he going forward with a primary for secretary of state, or will he fall back and uh, seek re-election the, to the state Senate? Uh, Hilda Santiago has a similar decision to make. She has a little bit more time. 
but does she want to uh, return to the House where she's a deputy speaker um, or, or, you know, take one last gamble in her career for a statewide office? And what about uh, Ms. Bond, I believe, who's the, the health director in New Haven? Is, is she potentially still interested? In, yeah, to- she um, I'm told that she is definitely running. Um, I did not reach her yesterday, but somebody in uh, in her campaign told me the intention is to go forward. And again, Maritza Bond went to the convention um not expecting to leave with the endorsement so it's not like that was a shock to her um but it's interesting maritza bond and stephanie thomas i'm told are actually quite friendly they've got to know each other so um that you know that will be an interesting little contest to watch i don't think you're going to see those two women cut each other up in the way that um i believe we will see in the republican primary for the united states senate i think that one's going to get pretty nasty pretty quickly. And moving on to the most exciting race, in quotes, the governor's race. Uh, no most, surprises. Most <laughs> no surprises at the Republican convention, uh, the Bob Stefanowski. None, none whatsoever. And so Ned, <laughs> Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski made clear that they live in different political universes. Um, Friday night at the Republican convention, um, the issue of abortion does not exist. It will not be mentioned. Um, all that will be mentioned is uh, our fiscal issues and the question of parental involvement in the schools, which, you know, the question is, well, is that a dog whistle for some deeper things? I mean, what? how will he develop that? that it was a big applause line. And the question is, when people applaud that line that parents should have greater control, what are they talking about? Is that a reflection on uh, critical race theory or which really isn't taught in the schools, but the question of the influence of of critical race theory on how children are taught about issues of race and and the history of slavery. Um, Is it a reflection of uh, the fact that schools, some schools are more open to teaching children about the diversity, about gender identity, at what age, uh, is that appropriate? How do you teach it? You know, there is a super PAC that was formed recently, um, backed by a, a wealthy hedge fund, hedge fund guy in Stanford. And he says he's going to spend a million dollars making critical race theory. Um, the fact that transgender athletes can compete in girls' schools. And then how issues of sexuality and gender are taught in the schools. Um, these are not topics I think that Ned Lamont and Bob Stefanowski are really eager to directly engage, but they're going to be out there. Um, and same thing with abortion. Abortion is now uh, an issue that was long settled in Connecticut, but if the Supreme Courts throw it back to the states, as the court seems inclined to do, uh, it will no longer be an issue that can, uh, candidates for governor can ignore and simply say it's settled law. The governor today is doing a ceremonial bill signing of a law that really um, brands Connecticut as a safe harbor for women seeking abortion. Um, Bob Stefanowski's running mate, Laura Devlin, voted for that bill. Um, Bob Stefanowski has yet to tell us uh, if he would have voted for it or if he w- was governor, would he sign it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we will be pursuing Mr. Stefanowski to 
sort of see where he is on that. I think he was a little reluctant to really wade into the debate over abortion before the convention. Now that it's over, um, we'll see where he goes on that. Well, thanks for uh, all of the context you provided. Mark, did we miss anything? Nah. (laughs) We'll have you back soon, I'm sure. Uh, Mark Pazniok is Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And if I forgot anything, Julia Bergman can... uh, (laughs) can uh, catch up on you. We'll, we'll definitely ask her, Julia Bergman with Hearst, uh, coming up later on the show as we pivot to cannabis. As we know, Connecticut's cannabis industry for adult use is moving along. The first applicants for retail licenses will be drawn soon through a lottery system. The catch? Just 12 are available, 12 licenses, and more than 15,000 applications have come in. We'll talk to the Deputy Commissioner of the State Department of Consumer Protection after the break. What questions do you have? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. A milestone is expected soon in Connecticut's recreational cannabis market. The state is expected to select its first retail licenses by lottery, but there are thousands of applicants for just a dozen licenses in this first round. Coming up, we're going to hear from Hearst, Connecticut's Julia Bergman about the latest in the cannabis industry developments in our state. First joining us is Andrea Comer, Deputy Commissioner of the State Department of Consumer Protection. She also chairs the Social Equity Council. Andrea, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So I mentioned the first round, retail licenses up first. Twelve are available, and you guys have received more than 15,000 applications. Was that surprising? It actually was. Um, You know, we had heard the struggles that other states have had, particularly in terms of getting social equity applications. And so we were, you know, it's one of those glass half full or half empty, depending upon how you look at it. On the one hand, we have robust applications. On the other hand, the question is, you know, is there, will there be dominance among among certain applicants in terms of the number of um, applications they submitted? Now, you mentioned other states and then just what you mentioned, um, applications they submitted. So there was a loophole, I understand, where uh, people could 
continue put in more than one application because it's a lottery system? Can you tell us more? Sure. So I believe it's section 40 of the statute that says that they can have no more than two licenses at the time that the lottery is run. Fortunately, that means they can apply for as many lot as many licenses um, as they as they prefer. So, you know, it's one of those um, nuanced language situations that created this sort of um, Pandora's box, if you will. So uh, applicants uh, applying for this retail license, you're getting a lot of duplicate applications? Um, We have seen um, several applications from, um, I think it's probably between 15 and 20 uh, applicants submitting several um, applications for the lottery. Uh, That said, the chances are about one in 10 of getting one of the licenses for those who have submitted, you know, hundreds of applications. So we are still hopeful that there will be diversity in terms of the number of, of licenses awarded. Uh, we know there are many out-of-state companies that, that already have a, a footprint here in our state because of medical marijuana. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, the, the out-of-state operators who maybe are backing some of these local applicants, Andrea. As you mentioned, you know, social equity has been a priority in the state. But in terms of how it's all going to flesh out, I mean, what are your big concerns here? Um, I think the the largest concern, again, is just having diversity of applications. I mean, if one person, let's say, gets two or three licenses um, with the backing of a multi-state operator, um, if they're still committed to community reinvestment in terms of hiring folks from their communities, in terms of, you know, really trying to leave a positive footprint in the communities where they are established, then I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I certainly understand the concerns that folks have in terms of multi-state operators dominating the market. But the truth of the matter is, no state has been able to get this perfect. Um, I've looked around for best practices. There really are none. I've looked for promising practices, and those are kind of few and far between. So we are, you know, we are committed to rolling this out as equitably as possible. Um, but the legislation is what it is. And so we are we are confined by the parameters of, of that law. Again, you're hearing Andrea Comer, who's Deputy Commissioner of the State Department of Consumer Protection. She also chairs the Social Equity Council. So break it down further for us, uh, for listeners who are not as uh, um, knowledgeable about this as you and your team in terms of 12 retail licenses. Half of them need to go to social equity applicants. And so walk us through this process of how they'll be chosen. Sure. So the once the... Once the application period has closed, which it closed last week, um, there will be two lotteries. Um, Each license type will have two lotteries, one for social equity and one for the general lottery. Social equity will go first. Um, Those who are not selected for the social equity lottery and those who were selected but did not meet the social equity criteria, they will have to pay the full fee and then be entered into the general lottery. Um, Each applicant will receive a unique identification number, and those numbers will go to the third-party lottery operator. Um, The third party will then randomize and rank the application numbers. 
um, informed DCP which numbers were selected. Um, in terms of the social equity applicants, the SEC will review those selected applicants to ensure they meet the social equity criteria. And then uh, those applicants who are selected for both uh, groups will be, will be notified. Mm. Uh, when we talk about this first lottery, again, a third party reviewing the, the non-social equity applicants, uh, your council reviewing the, the equity applicants, this is just one big step of many when we think about the type of, of capital that people need to start their businesses. So what's happening on that front? So we, the Social Equity Council approved an RFP to be posted, which was posted last week for an accelerator, um, which will help those social equity applicants who need a technical assistance, need access to capital assistance. Um, we've had several conversations with, with various entities that provide financing in one way or another, you know, until this is federally legal. Uh, the access, access to capital challenge will remain. Um, you cannot walk into one of those, one of the larger banks and acquire a loan because it is not federally legal. That said, there are a few institutions in the state and there are some national that are um, dedicated to, to supporting cannabis um, entrepreneurs in terms of capital. And when we talk about social equity applicants, uh, just to reiterate, people who've been disproportionately impacted by uh, the war on drugs, what are you hearing from these applicants? Again, you have uh, monthly meetings, uh, there's public comment. Are they frustrated with this process, Andrea? Yes, I think they are frustrated, and I certainly understand that frustration. Um, they are. Fr there are some who feel like there should not be a lottery. There are some who feel as though there should not be lottery fees. There are others who are very frustrated by that loophole that we talked about that allows um, one applicant to submit several applications. Um, but again, you know, the, the legislation was written as it was. The Social Equity Council nor DCP have the authority or ability to make changes to that law that will have to come through legislative change. And as this process rolls out, we will be, you know, sort of documenting some of these challenges and obstacles um, and making recommendations to the legislature for the next session. I recognize that that is not, you know, that doesn't course correct for this round, um, but, you know, this is, this is a process that that's going to require course correction as we go. And when you talk about um, the ability of lawmakers to address these loopholes, these concerns, that could potentially happen before the second round, I believe, this fall when more licenses are, are given out, Andrea? That would only happen if they came, if they mm -hmm. decided to convene in special session. Otherwise, we would have to wait until the next legislative session in 2023. I see. And so when we think about when this all will roll out uh, in terms of when the lawmakers at the General Assembly passed this law to permit uh, recreational cannabis, I think the hope was that things would be up and running by the end of 2022. Not so much now, probably next year, as you're saying. No, I, th I think the, the retail sales will still are still on track to to launch at the end of the year. Um, I think it's just in terms of what what subsequent rounds look like is going to be determined by any changes that the legislature may may make but we're i think we're still on track to 
have doors open um, by the end of the year. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, and when we think about how there's so many moving parts, so this is just uh, the first lottery for retail licenses. Next up would be micro cultivators. Can you explain more, Andrea? Sure. So a micro cultivator um, is a grower just in a smaller square feet of space than a cultivator, which I think is up to 15,000. Micro cultivator is about 2,500. Um, the lottery fee for for that is 125. It's the application process is now open. Um, it opened on February 10th, and then it'll it'll close tomorrow, actually at 11:59. And so the same lottery process will apply for all of the license types. At the top of the show, I said the the lottery for the first retail licenses will be happening soon. When, Andrea? Um. I can only say the end of the year in terms of when um, when retail sales start. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint an, an exact date. Mm. So the lottery will be happening soon, but then the applicants will be reviewed. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's correct. So the you know this, for those social equity applicants, the social equity council has contracted with an accounting firm. They will be doing a cursory review of those applications to ensure that social equity applicants. Um, meet the criteria, which is no more than 300% of the state's median household income or residency in a disproportionately impacted area for five of the last 10 years or nine of the 18 years from birth to 18. You know, when we think about um, out-of-state operators and what impact they'll have on this uh, this new industry in our state, I'm also thinking about um, some of the reporting that the Hartford Business Journal has done looking at hemp farmers in our state who also feel like, you know, maybe it would have been a better way to give them access uh, to this industry because they're already growing hemp. Uh, have you been hearing from them? And is there any um, movement to get a particular hybrid license? I understand medical cannabis growers can apply for hybrid, but not hemp farmers. Um, yes, that's correct. Uh, there was no provision allowing for hybrid in the legislation. However, House Bill 5329, which was passed, uh, does establish a, uh, the creation of a study to just sort of explore that. I know New York has recently allowed for hemp farmers to enter the recreational cannabis industry. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as well as what the study reveals. Mm. This all sounds so complicated, Andrea. You and your team bending the, <laughs> bending the ear of lawmakers who passed this law and then left the work to be done <laughs> with uh, DCP. What else do you want our listeners to know about this process moving forward? You know, I, I think most most importantly, I want listeners and those who are interested in this space to know that the Social Equity Council is committed to promoting equity in whatever way possible. I want them to know that we are we are playing the hand that we were dealt in terms of the legislation. Um, but we are, you know, nothing is set in stone. And we hope that as we identify challenges that we'll be able to, to address them through the legislation. Um, I also want folks to know that there are, you know, there are sort of three prongs to this legislation. One is around decriminalization of cannabis. The second one, obviously, is the opening of the cannabis industry. But the third part is about community reinvestment. And I think sometimes because that is seen as sort of a down the road 
um, objective, people lose sight of that. So while this, this process may have its challenges, the fees that are coming in are going to be reinvested in those communities. And I, I want those disproportionately impacted areas and the leaders, community leaders, elected leaders to be thinking about, you know, what are the ways in which we can use this revenue to really kind of restore um, those communities that have been so negatively impacted? Is it, you know, job training opportunities? Is it um, support for entrepreneurs who want to get into an industry other than cannabis? Is it around substance abuse education? Is it youth programs? We really want for the, the revenue that comes into this, um, and I know the legislature and the governor really thought critically about this, What can, how can those communities be improved um, through this new industry? That's Andrea Comer, Deputy Commissioner at the Department of Consumer Protection, also Chair of the Social Equity Council. Thank you for updating us on, on where this process stands. I'm sure we'll be having more conversations in the next few months with you. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to continue talking about Connecticut's recreational cannabis industry. We're going to hear from Hearst, Connecticut State Politics reporter Julia Bergman. What questions do you have? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking about Connecticut's cannabis industry, adult use, with the first retail licenses expected to be selected by the state soon. Joining us now on Zoom, Julia Bergman, state politics reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. Julia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. So what stands out to you in this uh, first round for retail licenses from what you heard from Andrea, but also at the reporting that you and your team have done? Yeah, so I think you'll find that a lot of um, legalization advocates uh, have said how important it is, just how important it is in the early rounds to um, make sure there's equitable outcomes. You know, who gets those initial licenses is really important for establishing, you know, the market in the state that's just starting to legalize uh, cannabis. So I think that's definitely something that, that sticks out. You know, as was mentioned, the odds are pretty uh, long for somebody to get one of these coveted licenses. You had over 15,000 applications for um, just 12 licenses. So I think the sort of first major test of equity will be, you know, who gets those out, uh, those licenses to begin with. Mm. And what are you hearing from social equity applicants about the process, Julia? I mean, I think there's some criticism of the way in which uh, Connecticut's lottery system was designed. Uh, as was mentioned, there's you can submit any number of applications that you'd like. So um, while there is a cap on the number of licenses that can be issued, um, you know, allowing somebody to who has the means to buy, you know, multiple applications or pay for multiple applications fees, that was a way to sort of give a leg up to. Um, maybe people with more means or uh, out-of-state companies. Um, so that's, you know, sort of a major, uh, I think, issue um, as Connecticut looks into, you know, sets up this market. 
when we talk about multi-state operator, you know, who are we talking about here? Again, I had referenced to, to Andrea, there are several that are already uh, involved in the medical marijuana program in Connecticut. And so can you tell us more? Yeah, um, I think you have the current four uh, medical producers in Connecticut are owned by out-of-state companies. These are companies that, you know, uh, are involved in cannabis businesses in a number of uh, states across the country. Uh, Cureleaf is one name that sticks out. Um, so entities like that, sort of larger larger corporations, which I think those involved in crafting Connecticut's law um, or who were really concerned about ensuring that uh, Connecticut's law really factored uh, in um, equity, you know, that's those are kind of the entities, the companies that they were worried about coming in uh, and taking over Connecticut's recreational market. Well, we heard Andrea mention the, the duplicate applications. I'm wondering if you can tell us more. I understand you were talking with uh, someone who actually is a consultant that helps these businesses interested in getting into to markets like Connecticut. So what can you tell us? Yeah, a, um, a consultant based in Chicago um, that has a company there uh, that helps uh, people and entities get involved into the cannabis market in various states, you know, helps them with the application process. And mentioned that he had clients that were considering submitting hundreds of applications uh, each. And in some cases, these were duplicate, ap uh, duplicate applications for the same license type to increase uh, their chances of getting picked in the state red lottery. And I think that's a trend you've also seen uh, in other states as well. Um, and at the same time, this is all going on. I think it's worth pointing out that um, Connecticut cities and towns are establishing their own rules for whether they want to allow these businesses, cannabis businesses, uh, you know, within their borders and where. And you've seen a lot of uh, cities and towns, at least initially, opt out of having these businesses within their borders. When we think about some of these multi-state operators who might be teaming up with a social equity applicant, uh, Julia, what do you think in terms of, uh, you know, helping certain locals get into the business, but having that, that extra boost from people who know what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear that you're going to need a lot of capital no matter what uh, to start up in this industry. You know, it's you need a lot of money uh, up front and the application fees are only one step in, you know, the process and you have um, tens of thousands of dollars for provisional licenses and um, final licenses. And then you have, of course, the cost of doing businesses. So, um, you know, having financial backing and strong financial backing is obviously incredibly important. Uh, but obviously there's a concern about, you know, where that money is coming from. When we talk about where the money is coming from, I understand there was some movement at the, the latest Social Equity Council meeting. When we think about who who's backing some of these social equity applicants. Yeah, so initially the Social Equity Council had established uh, a requirement that uh, backers had to show three years worth of uh, tax returns. And at their latest meeting, they actually um, did away with that requirement. Uh, they didn't. There wasn't a lot of debate around, uh, you know, why they did so. Um, but I think there was a recognition that that was sort of logistically, uh, or you know, not going to not going to work out in the way that they wanted. Um, I think the, obviously the intended goal was to sort of, um, you know, understand sort of the finances behind who was getting involved, or uh, you know, where the money was coming from. But I don't. I think it was determined that this was not the best way to uh, tackle that. Hmm. And it was interesting uh, to hear Andrea mention, you know, some that the loophole, the duplicate applications, but also just has their seeing the process roll out. You know, lawmakers will, uh, you know, need to revisit this, but potentially not going to happen until twenty twenty three. 
Right. You had uh, lawmakers make some changes this legislative session uh, to tighten up what they saw was a gray area of the law around cannabis gifting, which is allowed under the law. Um, but there was some larger scale events where cannabis gifting was occurring and um, lawmakers didn't like that that wasn't being regulated. So while you will still be allowed to gift your friends, uh, you know, a bag of marijuana, for example, um, it won't be allowed on such a large scale. And they've established uh, some, some fines uh, for violating that. And they also tightened up some restrictions around uh, advertising, billboard advertising around um, cannabis. But uh, there are definitely more changes that people want to make to the law, but those will have to wait until the next legislative session. You know, we've been um, having these conversations every few months just to keep uh, listeners abreast of, of this process moving forward, this uh, recreational cannabis industry, obviously a lot of money involved and money that the state will be also making. But do we have any idea, you know, when we think about uh, the number of Connecticut residents who, you know, are looking forward to this or the number that actually go across the border now to mass while we wait to see how the industry picks up here, Julia? So um, we have asked Massachusetts for their numbers as far as out-of-state um, residents coming there, and they uh, say they don't keep track of those numbers. I mean, we have some sense based on uh, the number of medical, registered medical patients in Connecticut, which is uh, over 50,000, I believe, and give you some sense of, you know, consumers here in Connecticut. Um, the state of Washington actually uh, contracted for, um, with the consultant to survey to kind of look at consumption. I'm not sure if that's something that Connecticut might uh, consider doing as well to sort of determine based on age, this will be uh, available to people 21 and older, um, you know, some type of survey of, of applicants, but I'm sure there will be, um, you know, high interest, certainly, as there has been in other states. That's Julia Bergman, state politics reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. So the question is, when exactly is this lottery taking place? Uh, we weren't able to get that from Andrea, but I'm sure I will be following you know, the reporting of you and your team, Julia. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lucy. That's Julia Bergman, state politics reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. You can listen to where we live anytime. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app. Back tomorrow.